Well, good morning. morning. Happy Father's Day, and I hope it's a blessed one for all. Well, we are in Daniel chapter 7, and there is much to say and much to glean from this passage. Thankfully, there are two weeks assigned to this chapter, so I have a backup, and we haven't planned what's going to happen after Sundays in July, so I have a backup backup. (laughs) But Daniel 7 is wondrous. And I think the best way to introduce this glorious chapter is with this reminder that if there is nothing else that we learn in this life, in church on Sunday, and from the scriptures, it is that there is one lesson, there is one refrain for everything from beginning to end in the Christian life, and that is to look to Christ. That is the lesson. That is what we must recall. That is what we must recollect. And if you think about everything in the Christian life from beginning to end, it revolves inherently around Christ. Even the phrase, the Christian life, is inherently about Christ. But if you think about how the Christian life begins, it is with one looking to Christ. The only way you can begin the Christian life is when Christ does a work in our heart and we respond in faith and repentance, looking unto Christ and Him alone. So the beginning of the Christian life is about Christ. Then the end, the eternal outcome and resolution, the solution and ultimate salvation and fulfillment of hope of the entire Christian life is Christ. That's what we understand. It is His return. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ as Revelation chapter 1 declares. It is exactly what First Peter announces, that we wait for the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is his return and his triumph over every nation, tribe, and tongue, and that he rules for a thousand years and that he will rule forevermore from beginning to end. It is inescapable that we understand that Christ is central and that we are to always look to him. That is how the Christian life begins. That is how it ends. And therefore, everything in between the beginning and the end, the way you daily endure, persevere, who we are, how we are to do what we're supposed to do, what we say, our entire purpose is summed up in Christ. That's why the book of Hebrews reminds us Christ is the greater messenger who gives us the greatest message, and he is also the high priest who not only we look to as superior to any other system for salvation, but he is the one who preserves us as we persevere in him. He is our intercessor. And the only way then that you can ever endure this life is if you cling to Christ who is clinging to you. That is the only way that you will make it and endure in this existence. Hebrews 11. This brings tremendous clarity to that chapter. Often, we want to focus on the faith of Hebrews 11. It is odd, if you think about it, that in a book, the book of Hebrews, which exalts the supremacy and preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ, for 10 straight chapters, that's the entire topic, that all of a sudden, in chapter 11, the chapter talks about your faith. I thought the topic of the book was Christ. Why all of a sudden does it shift to you? And the answer is, it's never shifted to you. Who do you put your faith in? Christ. Faith in and of itself is not virtuous. 
What makes faith virtuous is the object of the faith. And Hebrews 11 is a reminder, you trust Christ like Abraham, like Noah, like all the Old Testament saints, like all those of old, he will never fail you. That faith will not fail, not because you have some kind of faith, but because you have that kind of faith, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews through and through, including chapter 11, is about the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to persevere? Christ. You want to understand sanctification? Christ. What is sanctification? It is being transformed from glory into glory in the image of Christ. Colossians 3, what do we think about? The things above, where Christ is seated. Galatians 6, I will boast in nothing but Christ. It is always Christ, Christ, Christ. He is our hope, and anyone who has this hope, 1 John 3, purifies himself. Christ is our model. Christ is our end. Christ is the one who empowers us. Christ is our high priest. Therefore, Christ is central. Beginning, middle, and end. It has always been about Christ. And for this very reason, in Genesis 3, the moment the fall takes place, what are the first words, the first promise out of God's mouth? It is about Christ with the proto-euangelion that the seed will crush, will bruise the serpent's head. And therefore, from the Old Testament, it has always been directed. There has been a singular trajectory always pushing to the center of all history and all revelation, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is central. If you learn nothing else from the scriptures, nothing else from church, nothing else from going in and out of Bible studies Sunday after Sunday, the lessons of the scripture, they all revolve around the truth. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And the more you know him, the more you understand the one you are coming to and from whom the kind of solace, comfort, encouragement, and strength you are drawing from. We must know Christ. And in fact, this reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and his preeminence and centrality, it is what captivates our soul. Have you noticed in hymns and songs, that they always gravitate toward what is revealed in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. It is the refrain, holy, holy, holy. And all power, honor, and glory belongs to him. And we sing the songs from holy, 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 or be unto our God, or he is worthy. We understand that. All praise and glory and honor go to him. And there is a reason why our hearts are captivated to that refrain. There is a reason why our eyes and our mouths love and are drawn to those truths, because that truth is central. And when we are regenerated and we are made in the image of Christ, it is inerexable that we attend there. You cannot escape that. And there is a reason for that, because that notion is not just central, it's centrifugal. Everything is drawn to it. And for this reason, these ideas that Christ is central, look to Christ, understand his eschatological worthiness, that's what kept Daniel going. That's what kept Daniel going. We need to point out once again, that Daniel lived from a very, very young man in exile, apart from his parents, 
apart from any support, really. Yeah, he had three friends and about 123 enemies at any given point of time. And nevertheless, though threatened with death on numerous occasions, 80 years never bent. 80 years minimum, never compromised. You say, what a remarkable life. What an uncompromising life. How could he remain so consistent? And we know that the stories around Daniel are driven by the theology in the book of Daniel. And there is a center to it all. In fact, it's not hard to find the center of Daniel's life and the center of Daniel's thinking because he put it in the center of his book. It's a very convenient place to put it. Kind of matches the whole idea. If you look at Daniel 1 through 12, which is the whole book of Daniel, you notice that there are 12 chapters. And if you take a closer look, you will realize that Daniel's 1 through 7, more or less, is in Aramaic, and 8 through 12 is in Hebrew. Therefore, chapter 7 is the hinge on which the entire book of Daniel turns. Daniel is not always written in chronological order. If you look at chapter 7, verse 1, you will read about a gentleman named Belshazzar. He's already dead by chapter 5. He isn't resurrected here. He is rather, this is taken out of chronological order on purpose. Because Daniel is saying, do you want to know what made me endure all those years? Do you want to know what was embedded in my heart? Do you want to know and understand everything that drives me, what has gripped my life, what is the most important vision? The vision, interestingly enough, more on this in a little bit, that God didn't just give to Nebuchadnezzar, which I had to interpret, a dream that God gave to somebody else and I had to do it, a God that wrote a handwriting on the wall and I had to read it. No, this is the vision God gave me. You want to know that? That's chapter 7. It's in the heart of the book because it's in the heart of Daniel and it is the center of everything he is and ever the center of his entire revelation. Everything moves to this chapter from chapters 1 through 6 and from this chapter in chapters 8 through 12. This is the controlling idea of revelation of Daniel. This is the controlling idea of God's plan revealed in Daniel and this is the controlling truth of his life. Christ is central. Christ is all. This, you could say it this way, is the moment Daniel has been waiting for. What Daniel 7 gives, it's the moment that Daniel has been waiting for. Now, we understand that phraseology. We understand the notion of a moment you are waiting for. It could be a vacation. You've been waiting to go on that trip. Or it could be a wedding. People wait for that with great eagerness. It could be for retirement. That's the moment some people are waiting for because then they can sleep for the first time in their life. Some of you, the moment you're waiting for is lunch. But the point of a moment that we are waiting for is that we look forward to something. And that something occupies our mind, it occupies our hearts, it occupies our thoughts, it occupies our convictions, and it 
drives us and compels us and controls us with anticipation, there is a moment Daniel is waiting for. God gave him and revealed to him that moment. And he gave us that moment. And if you doubt for a second whether this moment can capture the heart and cause one to endure, if there are practical effects that ensue from this moment, just remember this. If you ask Daniel, how did you survive 80 years? Multiple kings, regime changes, lions' dens, diets and death. How did you survive all that? How did you survive every day and you just keep praying three times a day with all your heart and you don't grow weary? How did you do that? Daniel would say, I told you the answer already. It's in the heart of this book. It is Daniel 7. As I will argue, really the scripture is arguing and will present, this is the heart of everything. This is the most, one of the most sacred chapters of scripture. Because it talks about the height and the exclusivity and the glory of Christ And the message is simple for us. It's the message of all the Bible, and therefore the center of the Bible. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to Jesus. There is a moment we all are waiting for. And Daniel 7 is that moment. So if you have not turned to Daniel 7 yet, turn there. And there are just two simple truths in verses 1 through 14 that we might get through in this message. God knows the future, clearly, in Daniel 7. I do not. But we will try our best. Because, well, everything is moving to Daniel 7, 9 through 14. It's the most beautiful section ever. But we have to get there. And there's a lot of lessons to learn along the way. And so there are two points in verses 1 through 14 that we have the honor of covering. And those two points are the course of history and the coronation of Christ. History is moving somewhere. It's actually moving to one point and one point only. And the course of history moves to the coronation of the king, the king of kings. And so with that in mind, let's talk about Daniel 7, 1 through 8, the course of history. At this point, you might be wondering, Wait, often, as it should be, there, there, there is normally some kind of review. There is the setting up of context. I know Daniel 7 is in the middle of the book, but I didn't even have to know context to do that. I just had to know a little bit of math to kind of figure that out. Well, what, what is going on, and, and why aren't you covering it? And that is because I don't have to cover it, because Daniel does. In Daniel 7, 1 through 8, we, in a sense, have a little bit of review. It is a recapitulation. It is a repeat of what we've already been learning over the past six chapters. In other words, if you haven't been paying attention to the past six chapters, Daniel 7 will lose a little bit of luster for you because it is packing and incorporating so much, so many of the lessons that we have learned. 
But Daniel 7, 1 through 8 is not merely a repeat. It is not merely a review. There is expansion and elaboration on it. And furthermore, the elaboration has focus. It has concentration. The information is being used in a particular way to answer very specific questions. Survey with me Daniel 7 a little bit, and you will notice some immediate differences. There was earlier a dream and a vision that Nebuchadnezzar had on his bed. That was about a statue made of different materials, different metals. Here, what do you have? As Daniel is laying on his bed, you can see verse 3, there's four, not metals or materials, there's four animals, four different kinds of beasts that rise up. And Furthermore, before these beasts even rise up out of the sea, there's mention that there's the four winds of heaven that are being held back, then there's the sea, then there's these animals, and then if you keep moving down the text, in chapters 9 through 14, you will witness that there is a son of man, one like a son of man, who ultimately will have dominion over these animals. Now, there are two very important points to observe at this point. First, first, notice that these different animals with their different characteristics, they're very kingly, very powerful in nature. And in fact, the son of man, he also in that regard is a king. This is not just focused on kingdoms. This is focused on rulers. This is not just focused on countries. This is focused on kings. Second, more than that, have you noticed that, like I said, there aren't metals or materials? What you have is the sky and the wind and then the sea and then animals and then man. Where have you heard that kind of language before? Where have you heard, oh, yes, there's the sky and and then they had a sea and then you get animals and then you get a man? Genesis chapter 1. Daniel 7 is talking about creation. Daniel 7 is designed after Genesis 1. But Genesis 1 talks about creation at the beginning. Daniel is talking about creation at the end. Because the way it begins must be the way it ends. And at the beginning, there was one man, and God promised to that man, Adam, you will have dominion over all the earth. And the question of Daniel 7 is, who is the man who will have dominion over all this earth? Who is the one man, not the first Adam, but the last Adam, the final Adam, who will reign over all this world? Who is the one who will have all the power promised in Genesis 1? Who is the one that fulfills the destiny that has been established from the beginning, the very beginning, in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1? Who is that man? That is what Daniel 7 is dealing with. It is dealing with the flow of kings. And more than that is dealing with a powerful question. The question, who is the one who reigns over it all? That is the question of Daniel 7. We are not just talking about a flow of history. That is true. We are not just talking about how kingdoms come and go and God is sovereign over them. That is true. We are not just talking about the flow of God's eschatological plan and whether you should be premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, panmillennial, 
and not a millennial. We are not talking about any of those, just those things. We are talking about who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All the course of history is a search for that one. That is what Daniel is explaining to us here in detail. And with that, Daniel is presenting this message, this idea, this agenda as the most central controlling theme of all history and revelation. And you can see that starting in chapter one. Look at chapter seven, verse one, rather. Notice it's the first year of Belteshazzar. Belshazzar. You say, why does that matter? Because kings have changed. So what is the question that you're asking? Is this, who is this new king? And what do do I do? What do I think about new kings? What do I think about different kings? The whole question is about kings. And notice, Daniel not only has a dream, but it also says that he had visions in his head. Visions, plural. Why? Because there are so many images and so much information. It's not just one vision. It's what? Many visions. And it's it's a dream. Why? Because it's linked with all the other dreams that have been happening in the book of Daniel. This is the one dream that rules them all. That's exactly why it says in the text that in this dream, Daniel was on his what? Bed. Just like who? Nebuchadnezzar previously. If you want to understand Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its total purpose, its total explanation, its total point, then you need to have Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is the extended edition that explains everything that has been happening. Everything in revelation, everything in vision, everything in dream is controlled by this one dream and its superb culmination of all visions. And Daniel understood how gripping it was, and that's why the rest of verse 1 says this, he wrote it down. He wrote it down. Now, obviously, you're like, well, no kidding, he wrote it down. I mean, we can read it right here. He's written everything down for that regard. No, the reason it's emphasized here is because he wrote it down immediately after he saw it. Immediately to make sure he got every single detail because he knew it was that important. And he not only got everything in detail, notice it says this, and I gave the summary as well of the message. You say, why a summary? If you wrote everything down in detail, you don't need summaries. This is kind of summary 101. Summaries don't have details. Details don't have summaries. Well, what's the, what's the juxtaposition here? He wrote down every single detail, but he wrote it down in a way that you would never lose the big picture point of it. He didn't just do a data dump. A, a divulging of just a bunch of random bits of information. He understood the summary of it, the point of it. In fact, in Hebrew, it says the head i.e. the pinnacle of it all. Here's what's absolutely fascinating. Ephesians 1. When we are talking about the glories of Christ, when Paul is discussing the culmination of all history, and what does he say in Ephesians 1? That all things are summed up in Christ. Same language here. You want to know the summary of this message of Daniel 7? It is exactly the summary that Paul declares in Ephesians 1, which is the summary that God has always emphasized. All things are summed up in Christ. All things are for him. And so Daniel, verse 2, says, He answered and said, I was looking in my visions at night. 
It's no accident that he had this at night. You might have guessed that it was at night because he was on the bed, but he emphasizes it. Why? Because there are a series of night visions. There are a series of night visions in Scripture. We've covered some here in Daniel. People saw some of those visions at night. But Daniel's not the only book. You have it in other prophetic books. You have it in another book that we've covered too. Zechariah saw his visions at night. And Daniel's point is this. This vision controls all other visions. This vision is the other visions that all the other prophets have seen. All the other apostles will see. This is the one vision. That is what he is announcing. And so, with this in mind, yes, Daniel 7 repeats what was said. It will serve as really helpful review, and there are lessons to be learned in that. It will be consistent with what we've learned before. That is true. But at the same time, each thing that takes place will also confirm the nature of Scripture, and we can never lose that, that this is amazing prophecy, and that we have seen so many things of it fulfilled so precisely. It it just reminds us, this is the Word of God. This is not human opinion. This is not just a nice book that we study. This is not just a nice book with a leather cover and, we, and the leather is what makes it really nice. No, that's not what this book is. This book is the word of God. There is no way you can explain it otherwise. And we should be absolutely convinced that this is the word of God and not only that it is the word of God, but that this word is about this world. God's sovereignty is here right now. And in everything, because of the kind of sovereignty that he has exerted as revealed in Daniel 7. And so, yes, there is confirmation that this is the word of God. There is consistency with what has already been revealed. But third, third, what we will observe time and time and time as we go through these first eight verses in the course of history, we will observe that God constrains. God constrains all these kings because history is moving to a moment that we've been waiting for. And you know what that moment reveals? It's simple. There can be only one. There can only be one who is the final Adam. There can be only one who fulfills destiny and history of all this world. There can be only one who wields all the authority that kings have vied for. There can be only one. So as we go once again through these four different major kingdoms and their kings, There will be consistency with the past. There will be confirmation that this word is the word of God. But don't miss the constraint. The constraint that leads, that forces the course of history to the moment that we have been waiting for. And so Daniel, chapter 7, verse 3. Four beasts, they're rising up from the sea, one distinct from the other. They're not all a mishmash at the same time. And you look at verse 4, and you look at the first one. And the first one matches exactly that head of gold that we saw in Daniel chapter 2. He's like a lion, and, and he's got wings like an eagle. And what is noticed is that those wings were plucked out, and that this man that this beast was put on the ground and stood on his feet and and a heart of man was given to it. Now, if you stop and think about this for a second, yes, it's supposed to correspond with the head of gold. And if you remember what Daniel said about the head of gold, he said this to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Not just Babylon, but 
You personally, Nebuchadnezzar, are the heart of gold. This first beast corresponds exactly to that because who was like an animal on all fours? Whose, whose hair grew so long and nails grew so long, it looked like feathers of wings. And then, after a period of humiliation, God stood him upright and returned a heart of man in him, and he regained his sanity. Who was that individual? Nebuchadnezzar. This is very clear. This is very clear. There's consistency. You are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. What do we have with the first beast of Daniel 7? He is the head of gold. He is the one here. And there is a great lesson to be learned. A great lesson. Of course, this is the word of God. And, it is a, and it, as such, it declares a very important truth and reminds us of it. That any ruler on this world, if it was not for God, they would be no different than an animal. And man sometimes believes he's so mighty, but you get a taste of your own medicine and you realize you're not. You know that this lion with the wings of an eagle was kind of like one of the many mascots of Babylon. And if you really stop and think about mascots for a second, now I know that there are certain characteristics of mascots that teams are trying to emphasize. For example, at the Masters University, we have a Mustang. I, I know that much. And, and we want the ferocity of a Mustang, the speed and swiftness of a Mustang. Fine. But we wouldn't want to turn our soccer team into Mustangs. That's just not going to win the game. We wouldn't want to turn our baseball players into Mustangs. How in the world are they going to swing the bat if they're horses? I have heard that there is a, a mascot in the past, at least, of these banana slugs. I have no idea what they are trying to emphasize with that, but I guarantee no one wants to be turned into a banana slug, whatever that is, because that's not going to win any games either. And here Nebuchadnezzar said, this is my mascot. I'm so powerful. I'm like a lion. I'm like an eagle. And God said, fine, I'll make you one. And now look where you are. You are nothing. God's point is, man thinks he's so powerful. He's so mighty. And then when God gives him and shows him his power that he thought he had, it's absolutely irrational. It's irrational. God controls when man rises and when man falls. Every single ruler. You cannot, you cannot look at these rulers, these tyrants in the world and not realize this. They, they only exist and they only breathe and they only get up in the morning and they only have their any kind of rationality because of this, because God said you will. That's it. That is the level of authority God has over man. Nebuchadnezzar, by all accounts, is a great king. One who ruled vast territories of land. One who really catapulted the notion of a superpower to the front and center stage of world history. But God showed this proud man. If I don't give the word, you're a beast. That's it. That's all you are. God has that determining 
authority. And Nebuchadnezzar, is he the man? Is he the final ruler? Is he the last Adam? It's very clear. No, he's not. Without God, he's the animal that a man is supposed to rule over, not the one who is the man. That's the irony of it all. Well, there's a second beast that comes up. Verse 5. Another beast, a second one. And he's like a bear, this beast is. And it's got one shoulder that's upraised. Now, this is important. Do you remember in the dream about the statue, you had the head of gold, and then you had the shoulders, which were, which were silver, which were silver. Two shoulders, two shoulders. And what do you have? A bear with an upraised side. Two sides. There's a match here. Why is there an emphasis on two shoulders? Why is there an emphasis on an upraised side? It is because this is the conglomeration of Media and Persia, also known as Medo-Persia. The two nations joining into one, brought out by the two shoulders, and now the two sides of this bear. There is consistency. There's no breakdown in prophecy. It all is connecting one with the other. And here's what's absolutely fascinating. We know media and Persia now. We understand that. It's part of our history books. You can be tested on this. But back in Daniel's day, media and Persia were not even on the horizon. They weren't even on scene for much of Daniel's life. He didn't, there weren't the big bad guys. They weren't the dominating force. And that they would join forces wasn't really even in view. And yet Daniel's able to predict it. Daniel's able to predict it. That's the word of God. That's the word. How do you explain that? That's the word of God. And not only that, notice this. Notice what the text says. In its mouth, there were three ribs. Three ribs. Why three ribs? Because Medo-Persia famously conquered three major nations, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. Three nations. Well, did we, did, did, did Dan, was Daniel there when it happened? Yeah, years later, but he's pr- prophesying this in the opening year of Belshazzar. This is after, he's prophesying things that would come later, and Daniel already knew. Daniel already knew. How do you make a prophecy like that? How do you make a prophecy which says this, consume much meat? That's what it says. Consume much meat. This bear would devour many things in Medo-Persia. It would conquer a massive amount of territory beyond even Babylon as it would, it would devastate territories in Egypt and Greece and Central Asia. Everything the scripture said came to pass exactly like the scripture says it. That is precise prophecy. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. There's no way else you can explain it. This is the word of God. What he says happens. He's telling you history before the fact. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. But don't forget this. Notice, and this is astounding to think about. Verse 5, it says this. Thus they said to it, Arise and eat much flesh. Notice, the only reason the bear can satisfy his ravenous appetite is because they, those in heaven, under the direction of God, said to it. Here's an important lesson. No man rules by himself. 
Every man does exactly what God tells him to do. Why does a person go so far? Why does a ruler rule the way he does? It is because God ordained him to. That's it. There is no other explanation. Every person ultimately follows the instruction and ordination and sovereign decretive will of God. There is no rogue. There is no independent movement. There is no ability to go beyond that or beneath that. He does. Why does Medo-Persia conquer the exact latitude and longitude that they do? The nations that are designated, it is simple because God said, you will go here no further. And that's it. That is the sovereignty of God. And sometimes in our lives, we, we think things are completely out of control because people are going across all the boundary lines. And it might be true. Maybe they're going across legal boundary lines and all of the like, and there are moral repercussions of all that and responsibility, and we understand that. But they never go across God's line. That's what we have to remember. Nothing is out of control at the moment. God is sovereign. They go as far as God wants them to go and no further and nothing less. Because God said, this is what will be done, and so it will be done. And we take courage in that. We take courage in that. Well, that was Media of Persia. Here's a third one. Look at verse 6. Then another beast, and, and I saw it, and it was like a leopard, and, and it's got four wings. It's fast. That's a leopard. It's got wings. It's very fast, flying fast, and it is inescapable. This individual, people know this is Alexander the Great. Why? Because the guy is fast. He conquered the world 10 years. That's fast. This guy is speedy and he's vicious. And why four wings? Because over the whole earth, four corners of the world, this is this guy. He, he's amazing in that regard. And, and the Bible is amazing in its precision of prophecy that it can describe someone in such detail and with such apt description. And by the way, remember, the third material of the statue was the material of bronze. Greece's famous, famous material that they used in battle was what? Bronze. Here, it's still talking about Greece and the leader of Greece. And on top of that, notice this, four heads were on this beast. Four heads. Why? Because after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was distributed to four generals. Heads are leaders. Heads are rulers. Heads are those who have authority. And now the Bible predicts exactly what happens to Alexander the Great. Think about this. Alexander the Great wasn't even born when Daniel was alive. The Bible's talking about what's going to happen when the guy dies. He's not even born yet. We don't even know his general's names yet. Greece isn't even that big of a deal. It's not even significant in Daniel's day. And yet Daniel knew. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? Unless this is the word of God. This is the word of God. This is supernatural. This kind of precision, you don't find it anywhere. This is not stuff you can do as a lucky guess. That would be like me saying to you, predict 200 years from now the name of the president of the United States. And you can't use the name John. 
You think you could get it? Here is the Bible saying, here's the events that are going to happen. Here's how many people will take over. Here's how fast he will go. Here's this individual. And yet, and yet, though Alexander the Great, he's great because he conquered so much of the world, four corners of the world, four wings, all of that, so fast. Notice the last phrase. Dominion was given to that beast. Given by who? God. Here's the point. God is the one who determines if you rise or fall. God is the one who determines exactly where you go. You just follow his instruction. That's all that it is. For any king, that's the way it is. And here it is. Any ability you have, any power you exert, it is given by who? God. Sometimes we think, I'm a self-made man. I got my own power. I got my own autonomy. I got my own might. No, you don't. There is no authority on heaven and earth but whose? God's. Everything is borrowed from him. Everything is borrowed from him. And any king, whatever he has, it's only because God gave it to him. And that is the lesson. That is the lesson. Well, Alexander the Great was great, but he was. He's not here anymore. Because what can be given can be also what? Taken away. And that's why there's another, another animal, a fourth animal, a fourth animal that arises, and it's fearsome, and it's strong, and, 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 and all the language of strong and, and fearsome and, and terrifying, all of those terms are used of the statue. They're used of the entire statue. Why? Because this creature, this different creature, this fourth beast, it is, it is the embodiment of all human power. Take all the previous kingdoms. They've all tried to vie for the position of the final Adam, the last king, the king of kings, the lord of lords over the entire world. None of them have been able to succeed, even though they're all ferocious in their own right. Well, this final beast, he says, I will try to be the combination, the culmination, the embodiment of them all. And so this final beast is this iron metal that we have in the previous uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and how do we know that? Because what kind of teeth does this beast have? It has teeth of what? Iron, just like the previous one, totally consistent. And as the final kingdom, shall we say, the final stage, which represents Rome and ultimately a revived Roman Empire, we'll get there in a second, what happens is that this empire it's different than anything previous, and it is the embodiment, the, the entire culmination of all human power. If you combined all human power, all human authority that is found across the world, every ounce of it, this, this, this kingdom has it. This kingdom has it. And here's what becomes interesting. As such, it says this, that it consumed, it devoured other nations. That's what it says in verse 7. It devoured other nations. Why? Because what Rome did is it didn't just let nations be the way they were. I mean, to a degree, I suppose you could say that. But here's what it really did. It assimilated them. It assimilated them. It forced them to change, to try to conform them into themselves. It devoured them in that way. And it says this, it crushed them. This is a very fascinating term. 
crush them. Do you remember what happened when the stone came to the statue? What did, it, what did the stone do to the statue? It crushed the statue. And the stone is the Messiah. This is the same word here. What Rome is and was and will be is an empire that tries to do what the Messiah does. It is an anti-Christ kingdom. And in doing so, as, as it tries to strike the same blow, the Messiah will truly strike in the end. It says this, then it will trample all these nations underfoot. It'll just completely tyrannize and oppress them and demonstrate its absolutely ter- terrifying rule over all these different countries. Now, that's Rome. But here's what becomes interesting. Notice what it says. And this kingdom, this beast, it says in verse 7, was different than all the beasts before it. Now there's this distinction made. There's something different about this animal than everything else before. And do you not remember that when you looked at the iron part of the statue, there was iron, but when you went further down the statue, there was iron mixed with clay. And, and that iron mixed with clay was kind of a distinction between everything else of the statue, which was homogeneous. It was all gold, all silver, all bronze, all iron, and now it's mixed. It's different. This is also different. This is also different. And notice, it was particularly different because it had ten what? Ten horns. Now, a horn is rulers. More on that in a second. But do not lose this. As you went down the statue, what was made out of iron and clay? It was, it was the feet, yes? And what do feet have on them? Toes. And how many toes do normally people have? Ten. Ten horns. Ten toes. It all matches. It's all consistent. Prophecy isn't contradicting each other. Prophecy is deepening itself. And this is prophesying a very distinctive kingdom, one we have not seen yet. It is not like any kingdom we have seen yet. And that is what we call the eschatological revival of Rome, the kingdom of the ultimate Antichrist. And speaking of which, that's why this kingdom is different. It's so big. You got one king over ten kings. You know, you got president of presidents, prime minister of prime ministers. That's how big this kingdom is. That you don't have governors or anything like that. I mean, yeah, the United States has that kind of system. We, we understand that. No, it's so big that it's a conglomeration of 10 different kingdoms, but they're all one kingdom. We're the United States of America. There will be a true United Nations in the end, in that regard something you've never seen before, a true one. And there will be one ruler over it, speaking of which. Notice what happens as Daniel is looking further into this dream. He sees one small horn, just one small horn. It's the underdog. And it rips out three other horns. There will be one king who will overcome all these other kings, take them all over. And notice what it says. This one has eyes like a man. This king, this final king, what's the imagery of eyes? It's very simple. 
the eyes, they see, they're wise, they have insight. In fact, the Holy Spirit is sometimes characterized by eyes, by having eyes. This one will have something that is like inspired. Let me stress that again, like someone inspired. This one is so intelligent, so insightful, so perceptive, so smart. It is as if he's inspired. That's what the idea is. He is the perfect antichrist. And notice what he also does with his mouth. With his mouth, he makes great what? Boasts. Have you ever noticed throughout the book of Daniel, the word great is used a lot? It's on purpose. You have a great statue. That's one of them. You have a great furnace. You have a great other statue, which they were supposed to worship. And, and there was great music. And there was a great banquet that, that was partying against God and, and, and those people died. And, there, and there's a, great, a lot of great things that happen in the book of Daniel. And all of those greatnesses are tied with man's power and strength. Notice this man, he was boasting of great things. He is embodying all of the great things of the past, all of the might of man. And so what you have is a kingdom that embodies all human might, and with that you have a king, an antichrist, who tries to do what Christ is and does and will do, and he is boasting and trying to exert all the power and might that man has ever had in history and in the breath of all the world in and of himself. That's the antichrist. That's the antichrist. He is the embodiment of all human power. And that's where history is heading. That's where history is heading. And we say, what do we learn from this? What do we understand from this? Well, there's lots of lessons to be learned, to be sure. For one, have you noticed how consistent Daniel 7 is with the rest of what we've been learning in the book of Daniel? There is no contradiction. All you're doing is building up details upon details upon details upon details. That's absolutely true. Have you remembered that in Daniel 7, there are these amazing prophecies with those details that confirms that this is the word of God? How can you predict there was an Alexander the Great and four kings after him? How did you know about Media and Persia and that they would conquer these three nations and conquer so much land? That, that's astonishing. How would you understand that there is this nation of Rome and, and its distinctions and then, of course, an eschatological Rome? That confirms the word of God and even more along the lines of consistency and along the lines of confirmation. We understand the plan of God hasn't changed. It's set. It's the way it is. The, the kingdom does not come until all of those things have taken place, and we are therefore still waiting for it. And if we wonder if there's going to be a future kingdom of the Antichrist and a future literal kingdom of the Messiah, just remember this. Daniel, he's seen these things, and he's only experienced one of those kingdoms, and he believed, and he believed. He, he's only a Belshazzar who didn't even make it on the map of all these four kings. And he still believed. We've got four of the 4.5 of the progression of kingdoms here. Oh, ye of little faith. He believed with one. He could have believed with none. But he believed with one. And here, was there a Babylon? Well, yeah.